Dr. Browning joins me today for today's episode. She currently serves as a professor of counseling in Milligan's counseling program and has a PhD in counselor education and supervision from the University of Mississippi, a master's degree in an educational specialist degree in school psychology from the University of Memphis and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Crichton College. She is certified in trauma and abuse through the Allender Center. Her experience in working with victims of trauma is what I wanted to focus on in today's episode. So I do wanna go ahead and give a trigger warning that this episode does contain some conversation about child abuse and relationship violence. That's it, all right. Well, I guess, first of all, thank you for being willing to do this. You're, you're the number two <laughs> recording, so. You're not quite the guinea pig, but you're the runner-up guinea pig. Okay. Um, I do good at guinea pig, I think. (laughs) Um, So I guess just to start off, can you talk about, even though I know, but share with people that might listen to this, what your current role and what you're doing right now? Sure. Um, I'm a professor in the counseling program at Milligan University. So that means that I teach the graduate program that we have at Milligan for counseling, Master of Science in Counseling. Um, Some of the classes I teach are intro to the field of counseling, assessments, the DSM class, that's the diagnosis class, learning how to diagnose mental illnesses, Um, trauma and crisis intervention, and child sexual abuse as well as um, Christian perspectives on counseling. So those are the courses. So just a couple of classes. You don't, you don't teach much. <laughs> not Goodness, much. Um, they get kind of tired of me by the first year, I think. <laughs> did you always want to teach or did you just kind of, like how'd you land where you are now? How did I land? That's a great question. So my, my personal path to education is very closely linked to my personal experience of trauma in childhood, which is why trauma and crisis are so near and dear to my heart and teaching people how to respond to that. I grew up in a home that was very chaotic. Um, my father was a government employee. He was, we were upper, upper middle class. He was a um, special agent with FBI, so prominent family, you know, well-known in, the, in the, the circles that we revolved in. Um, my mother had five children. I'm right in the middle of those, so two older sisters, then me, then two younger brothers. And my two younger brothers have sight handicaps, so I grew up with two siblings who had um, significant issues with handicap that needed attention in schooling and just, you know, a lot of things like that going on. Our home was very chaotic. Mm -hmm. My mother was overwhelmed. Um, I was uh, abused by an uncle and also by my dad and just a a lot of things that went on there. Frequently told by my mother that I was stupid and would never amount to anything. Um, So I believe that. I, I truly, honestly believe that. So my path to education, where I am right now, is um, quite miraculous, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so the hand of God in it, just everywhere. Um, so at, when my youngest child was a senior in high school, I was 42. 
And I, I really wanted to get over my fear of, of math. Um, God had been really dealing with me about dealing with some of the giants in my life and uh, things that were really keeping me down. So I'd enrolled in a state technical institute and took a basic math class, at no college credit, and got an A. And I thought, well, that's a fluke. <laughs> Somebody made a mistake, you know. Um, so I went ahead and enrolled in intermediate math, which is also a non-college credit, and got another A. And had also taken a creative writing course that was college credit and got an A. And that was kind of, my strength was writing. So when I got those A's in math, I thought, well, maybe my mom was wrong. Maybe I really can learn. Mm -hmm. So I went ahead and enrolled in college algebra. And when I got an A in that, I was just over the moon. And that just, that just opened my heart to say to myself, I think you can do some of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so I enrolled in a state, uh, not state, a private Christian liberal arts college in Memphis, Crichton College, and much like Milligan, um, although we met in a church because we didn't have a building or a campus or anything. And I graduated summa cum laude and just, I, I just caught the learning bug and I just couldn't stop. And I was just thrilled that, you know, I could keep learning things. I was my, my, I was insatiable. I just couldn't get enough. So, um, graduated with my PhD in counselor education and supervision, which left it open for me to either, and I'm also licensed as a counselor with a mental health service provider. Um, so I counsel, but I can also teach, mm -hmm. which is really, I love, 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 love to teach. Um, and because I entered the field so late, uh, by the time I graduated with my PhD, I think I was 54, maybe. Um, so, you know, still relatively young in these yeah. days, um, but, but I really wanted to give back to the field of education that had just given me so much and, and helped me learn more about myself. So that's when I started. My dissertation was in trauma, you know, just different things like that. So I just continued, continued to learn, to work on my own story, and then to find ways to teach people who counsel how to effectively work with people who have experienced significant abuse in childhood, in particular sexual abuse. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. So you just started taking some classes and the next thing you know, you've got your PhD and your, your teaching and counseling. <laughs> it, was, it was just amazing. And what, what we didn't know at the time was that my husband would be diagnosed with what he has now, which is um, three different lung disorders that are incurable. And I'd never, I'd, the jobs that I had were like typing or you know, nothing wrong with that. They wouldn't have been enough to support us. And so right at the time that he was diagnosed and had to retire, then I was prepared to teach. And uh, Crichton hired me, or where I went to undergrad, hired me to do work. So that's awesome. kind of how I got here. <laughs> so I'm going to assume then, you know, when you were younger, um, even young adult age, you had no idea that this is where you would, oh, would end up. So you wasn't were very even much in my not, your, not a... 
I think I know that I felt this way when I was in undergrad. I imagine a lot of undergrads feel this way now. Of you're going to graduate, like you just you should know exactly where you want to go, um, and that is just not always the case. No, and, and you know God has such a sense of humor, and um, so I was driving home from Crichton one night where I had taught statistics, and I said, God, you're just funny. You know, you're just funny. <laughs> the one that being afraid of math, uh, teaching it. Yeah, it's just, he's just funny. So um, it's just delightful to be with him. So in thinking about working, like doing counseling, specifically focused on, on people who are victims of trauma, what, what are some things that you would think are major misconceptions that people would have about that part of your profession? I think one of the main misconceptions that that is really kind of an unconscious one um, that a lot of people just don't think of, people that have experienced abuse have a different brain system. So the way the brain works and the way that um, chemicals are released and the responses, the bodily responses or anger issues or um, shutting down or wanting to flee in those moments of triggering, it's not because that person doesn't want to be in control or doesn't want to know how to self-regulate. It's because their brain has been trained that there is no way to self-regulate. Frequently, people who've experienced abuse in childhood um, have poor attachment histories, so they have uh, an avoidant attachment, an ambivalent attachment, or a chaotic attachment. And so avoiding is a parent that was not there for them ever. You know, so a neglectful parent. An ambivalent, a parent was there, um, but not, not fully attending. You know, so needs were met, but not full attunement, attention to that child. And then chaotic is the parent was there sometimes, but sometimes not. The child naturally wants to attach to a parent, but if that parent is also the abuser, then they, they're, you know, they're afraid of them as well. And so that just creates this chaos that they don't know what to do with relationships. So that carries into adulthood. And certainly children who, who experience it, um, people want to use behavioral techniques on them, which sometimes work for a while, but that's getting at the symptoms and not the problem. Mm. You know. So it, it, the assumption is all, all kids are created equal mm -hmm. when they're really not. And so a, a child who acts out and gets kind of labeled a bad kid, there may be something really deep that they just cannot, they can't con control the way other children have learned to be able to control because they can't, they absolutely can't self-regulate until they can be taught that. So has most of your work been with children when you're working with trauma victims specifically, or have you been just across the board with age range and demographics? I've been across the board with age ranges. I started out in private practice working with children who'd experienced sexual abuse. And in about two years, I burned completely out mm -hmm. because it was just too close to my own story. And I hadn't worked enough on my own story to understand enough. I don't think I did any damage, but I certainly wouldn't would have if I'd have continued in private practice. Yeah. 
so that was kind of the time that I thought uh, I'm just going to full time do teaching because I'm 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 better at teaching people how to recognize these things than actually working in it. Okay. At least that was true at the time. Uh, sure. Now I still work with adults who have experienced abuse in childhood and have a very effective ministry with them. Yeah. So I would assume that's maybe one of the most challenging parts of working with victims of trauma is the, the emotion that that still stirs up with you. Right. And I think one of the things of working on your story helps with not only with, with victims that I work with, but also for my own story to keep working on that and keep progressing in that is so that I recognize those triggers and I know how to respond to them and I know what they mean and I know what's happening in my brain. And so helping people, other people who've been experienced trauma recognize those things is very, very empowering for them to not feel like they're crazy because you feel like you're crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, you just feel absolutely crazy. Why am I responding like this? I don't even want to have a fight with my husband. Right. But when you're, when you're triggered and those chemicals are released, it takes eight hours to come down from a cortisol rush. And that, you know, that's, that's an adrenaline rush. You know, it's just all those uh, stress hormones that are released and your body just can't recover automatically. It takes time. Yeah. So recognizing what you need in that moment. So if I'm triggered to be able to say to my, my husband, this is what's happening inside of me right now. And I know if I try to talk to you about this, it's, it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. so I just need to withdraw for a, a bit and collect myself. And, and then can we come back to this? Yeah. And, you know, so that, that's been very effective for me. So is then, I guess, teaching those skills to your clients, is that the most rewarding thing? Or what would you say is the most rewarding thing about working with this population? That's rewarding to see them, number one, know that they're not crazy. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, there's a reason for this. Mm -hmm. Okay, these are the reasons that, I'm, that this is the way I respond to things. So being able to see them begin to understand what's going on. Um, uh, for example, some people who are triggered by a traumatic memory and have a trauma response with those chemicals going around, their, their language, alexithymia, their language goes offline. So much like an, a stroke victim, that same part of the brain that goes offline, they can't talk. So you know, think about a child who's been triggered maybe on the playground or something and well, tell me what's going on. Why did you do that? They don't, they literally, literally don't have words. They just don't have words. And sometimes we think they're being just obstinate or, mm -hmm. you know, but they're not. They just, they literally don't have the words. And so to, for adults to be able to see that the reason you can't find words, number one is because those memories of abuse don't happen in a linear fashion. So it's all just kind of fragments. And when you do try to express what you went through, you just don't have the words. You can, you can engage the sensory side. That's why art therapy is so helpful with 
victims of trauma because that side that has the symbol and the, the feeling, you can ask them what the smells were like or colors that were going on and they can engage you there, but the logic side is just, it's not logical. You know, what abuse is logical? So to answer your question, it's exciting to see clients be able to see, I, I think the biggest thrill is I'm not crazy mm -hmm. and just kind of take that deep breath and then the second side of that is teaching and really seeing students um, get it because it's a different kind of therapy than just straight behaviorism or cognitive behavioral. It's, it's just a different approach to people and children who've experienced trauma that you, you just can't approach them the same way. Yeah. And thinking about teaching this to students, have you noticed, is there a, I would think that the reaction and the just seeing all of this information processed for a student who has never experienced significant trauma would be very different than a student who has, whether or not they've disclosed that information to you at that point or not. Have you have you noticed that? And I guess what have you observed in in students both who have experienced that significant trauma and who haven't as they are learning these things and getting their first hand experience in working with these types of clients? That's a great question. And one of the things I notice the most is students who have not experienced trauma want they, they want a checklist of things to do. Mm -hmm. So one, two, three, four, five, and then everybody's good, right? And there's a there's a standard approach and it works with everybody and just give me just give me what to do. And so for the first maybe three or four weeks of child sexual abuse. That's what I get. Well, just, I want practical steps of what to do. And I'm, I'm trying to say the most important thing you can give a client who's experienced abuse is your presence, yeah. your face, your eyes, because what they have not experienced is attunement. So they've, they've not had somebody see them. And I don't mean look at them. I mean, see them. Mm -hmm. And so when they're in the presence of somebody who sees them, even for the first time, it's going to be uncomfortable for them. But, but what we're doing is we're in essentially we're reparenting. We're giving them what they never received in that attachment and we're providing that attachment. And as abuse happens in relationship, recovery and healing has to happen in relationship. It's, it's just so vital to, to develop that alliance with that client mm -hmm. and, and to be able to, um, this is Kathy Lorzell uh, made this example. So if there are two platforms and on this side is trauma and then there's a big U and on this side there's healing. Mm -hmm. um, as Christians, a lot of times we look at, if we look at trauma as the cross, and this side is resurrection, but there's three days in the grave. And a lot of times we want to yank people, especially new, new counselors, want to yank people from their trauma to healing. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you have to go through that pit. And so I think the, one of the hardest things for new counselors is to be willing to sit in that mess with the client. They need you to be in that mess with them and let them talk about what they need to talk about. Yeah. 
and you not be, you know, disgusted by what they disclose or judgmental about what they disclose. Um, there has to be an openness of heart and a deep, deep respect for human suffering, you know, whatever its cause. Um, and, and there are people that are called to this work and there are people that aren't. You know? mm -hmm. So uh, I think the hardest thing for people who have not experienced abuse is to get it, you know, to get that pit that they have to walk in and stay in. Mm -hmm. But that, but they do, you know, you don't, you don't have to have experienced abuse to work with right. clients that have been abused. But I would say it's hard for the ones who have been, I would think it's hard to be in that pit. Um, especially if it's somebody whose story, like you mentioned earlier, like somebody whose story very closely aligns with yours. Um, have you had, I'm assuming you have, have you had students who they are coming into it with their own trauma and they're getting ready to work with in just the, you know whether that's they've been triggered or just even have on you know kind of quickly getting geared up for burnout have you experienced that with a student and how how have you guided them through it actually several students mm -hmm. so there there are more than we think students mm -hmm. who've experienced pretty significant trauma in childhood or you know they've experienced a rape in a relationship or something like that and so they come in with pretty significant trauma anyway mm -hmm. and may not even realize it because a lot of times that trauma is pushed underground um, you don't want to think about it so you just kind of uh, uh, again in the in the christian community and i'm not picking on the christian community but a lot of times we say well just pray more just forget that it's in the past, you know, it doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. Mm -hmm. It's how you relate to people now. It has such an influence on the way you present and are present or not, or, you know, just how you respond to different things. It's so much a part of who you are that if you don't go back and look at it and understand why, then you can't make a difference. So when students start to recognize their own trauma just from the material I mean it's just it's pretty clear you know what what trauma is what it looks like and um, there are a lot of people that want to come then and talk to me privately or that's the point at which they get their own counselor mm -hmm. uh, because I can't counsel them ethically right. but I'm certainly there as their professor to hear from them and to give them support and feedback and things like that that they might need and there there's several times, well, I don't know several, but there are times in the semester when I teach child sexual abuse, and last week was one of them, when they come in and I just say, it's the time in the semester when we need a mental health day. And so like last week on Tuesday, we colored mandalas. Yeah. And we, we listened to peaceful music and we, we did some fun group activities that didn't really require thinking. Mm -hmm because the material is so heavy mm -hmm. that you've got to provide that that for them and so those kinds of things help with the discoveries that they're discovering for the first time and self-help is obviously a big thing for everybody but especially for the people working providing mental health care what 
what what types of things did you do um you know when you especially when you were maybe in private practice and counseling full-time um or even people that you like colleagues of yours now what are some of the things that you see that particularly people that are working with victims of severe trauma what, what are the things they're doing to take care of themselves i think one thing for me is play Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important to play. That's that's a great relaxation for me. So I love I love um, cartoons. I love you know animated movies. I just love them, uh, especially the fairy tale character of them, um, the heroines in them. There's a lot of um, Adlerian there you know, theory in there about the shadow personality and you know the heroine and it, you know, so it's even conducive to my work to help people look at fairy tale characters and you know what was their trauma and there are books about it and stuff yeah. so that that's a fun thing for me um next week there we're having a movie night and psychi is is um hosting that for the campus and so like joy drennan's gonna dress up and jp and we're gonna dress <laughs> up in the inside out characters oh nice and, you know just just being able to have have fun and just really release some of that fun and not being so uptight and you know I've got to be this way because I'm a coach you know, right it's life is way too serious and, and so just giving yourself permission to to laugh and have fun is such a great great release um, I love to go to movies with my grandkids when they were little. I just loved it because I could take them to everything that was, you know, everything that came out. I was there. Yeah, they were great. Um, but just just having fun, allowing yourself play, I think is so so important. And certainly, um, meditation, prayer is so important to me. Uh, time alone with the Lord, just listening and and knowing that he delights in me that there's nothing i can do to make him love me more or less and i don't understand that but it's amazing mm -hmm. you know it's just amazing that he loves me that way and so um letting myself know that he delights in me that he sings over me that you know he wants to be with me um and just knowing him so intimately and personally that that's real important for my self-care as well yeah so if you encountered a 19 20 year old undergrad student who was majoring in psychology and came to you and said i want to work with victims of of trauma or people who are suffering from ptsd what what advice would you give to that student great yeah, that, that's a, that's a great goal um and come take a class or two you know uh child sexual abuse is a dual listing so it's undergrad and graduate um if you're really interested in in working with this population that's probably an essential class so to take that class um, if they're not a psychology major you know, I'd, I'd want them to have some of that basic information of theory and mm -hmm. and um, 
some of those skills, uh, even counseling skills. I think there's a counseling skills course at the undergraduate level that, that's important. Um, I give them some suggestions of some books to read, but the books without someone to interact with, I don't know that I just want to unleash the books on them. Gotcha, yeah. I'd want them to have some kind of guidance to it. Yeah. Well, did you have any other profound thoughts you want to <laughs> pass on to, to folks? I just, it's, it's so delightful to talk about it. I think I could talk about it all day. <laughs> but, um, it's such a, such an important field. Yeah. It's such a necessary field. Um, I think there's more of an epidemic of sexual abuse than people realize. Yeah. There's certainly more of a need to engage children who have experienced abuse in lots of different ways, not just sexual. Um, and in this region, there are many, many, many children who, who suffer from what, what Beth Vanderkolk calls child developmental disorder, which is this trauma base um, that's just treated, they treat the symptoms like, oh, it's ADHD, that's why they're acting out, or oh, it's this. Or, so a lot of times kids that act out in school by the time they're 18, they have six or seven diagnoses that, you know, ADHD and um, reactive attachment disorder, and that there are all kinds of things in the DSM that will label kids, but what's underneath that? That's, you know, that's, that's the question. What's really underneath that? And so my, my desire and my hope is for people to look underneath and to be willing to investigate the why. Mm -hmm. um, and to entertain the fact that this, you know, instead of saying, uh, this is um, the podcast, terrible, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. her, her name's McInerney, um, says she has a podcast on, instead of saying, what's wrong with you? Saying, what happened to you? You know, what happened to you? Mm -hmm. Even if you're, you're just in passing seeing someone rather than looking at them and with a curse thinking, what's wrong with you? Um, just that kindness extended of, you know, what happened? What happened to you? Yeah. So. Yeah. The world needs a lot more of, of that rather than, yeah. than what's wrong with you for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this and delightful <laughs> glad that we didn't encounter knock on wood didn't encounter any other uh internet glitches when it happened earlier i was like oh no we might be up for a long yeah. long chat but it, it's cooperated so um so yeah thank you so much for doing this and i hope that this kind of sheds some light on what somebody might be getting themselves into if they're thinking of working with victims of trauma, which I think anybody that works with people, they're working with victims of trauma. Right. Um, they may never hear the details of it and they may never really get into it with them, but um, this is something that I think anybody that's going into a helping profession needs to be aware of and think about because it, it, you're gonna see it whether you know that's what you're seeing or not. Yeah, and it, you're so right, um, and thanks for reminding me of that. We've all experienced trauma of some kind. Mm -hmm. 
there's there's nobody on the planet that hasn't had some kind of a tra traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So well, thank you again for doing that. Uh, well, thank us for asking me. I, it's delightful. Thank you, Heather. Sure. Well, I will talk to you soon. I hope that the COVID world continues to be kind to us and yes. that we all stay healthy and things don't unravel. So any crazier than it already is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people are like, how is everything with COVID? And I'm like, I don't want to say because it could get worse. I know. I know. As soon so, as I say, then it'll go away. Uh -huh. <laughs> yep. For sure. So Alrighty. Well, thank you so much. Have a good rest of your Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever day. It's Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday. <laughs> it's Wednesday. <laughs> Thanks, right. Heather. I appreciate Thanks. it. All right. Bye. Bye. This recording is a production of the Milligan University Faculty Resource Room. Thank you for listening.